Alright, we are going to be in our 18th lesson of Mark today. 18. Uh, and actually, this is going to be a continuation of last week's um, in, in the book of Mark. Uh, so if you have your Bible, uh, and this is a lesson that you will need your Bible for, so hopefully you have one with you. If you don't, uh, there should be one either in front of you or under you, or if you can't find one, raise your hand and we'll make sure that one gets to you. Turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15. Uh, just to throw you guys off for a second here, I wanted to go ahead and uh, start with that, start with Matthew chapter 15. Um, Today, uh, before we get started, I guess today, and while you guys are finding your place, today's a special day for me. Today is February 19th, and uh, today marks the day, uh, five years ago, it was a Monday, and for a couple weeks I'd been thinking, you know, this podcasting thing doesn't seem so hard, I bet I can do it, and so on February 19th of 2007, five years ago today, uh, I started BibleStudyPodcast.org. Um, so for me, today's like, wow, five years? Are you serious? It's gone by so fast. So anyway, uh, and here we are, uh, five years later. I never would have thought that this would be the situation that I'd be in, but praise the Lord, this, is, this has been an awesome journey. Um, so hopefully you're there in Matthew chapter 15, and we'll go ahead and get started there in just a minute. Today we're actually going to be covering what I consider to be one of the most uh, difficult, uh, controversial, and confusing passages in all of Scripture. And this passage has created uh, more confusion and more, I would say, false conclusions than maybe any other passage in the entire New Testament. Uh, As we study the book of Mark, we've seen the compassion of Jesus on display wherever he went. We've seen his compassion over and over and over again everywhere he went. He's healed lepers. He's healed Anyone who's come to him who's been stricken with disease uh, out of compassion, right? These are acts of compassion on his behalf. Uh, He's caused people who haven't been able to walk for years to walk once again out of compassion. He healed a woman who had a problem with bleeding uh, for 12 years out of compassion. All she wanted to do was touch the fringe of his cloak of his garment and be healed by that, but he is compassionate in that he calls attention to what she has done and heals her, not based on the fact that she touched the fringe of of his garment, but based on her faith. It's all out of compassion. Uh, He raised a young girl from death back to life out of compassion. And let's not forget, he's cast unclean spirits out of people multiple times out of Compassion. He fed the multitudes out of compassion. Compassion has abounded in Jesus' ministry, right? And then we come to our passage today, and just to warn you in advance, Jesus is going to appear to be anything but compassionate. In fact, he might appear to be short-tempered. He might appear to be confused. Uh, He might appear to be maybe caught off guard or surprised. And he might even appear, appear to be cold-hearted. But that's why I'm warning you in advance that this is a confusing passage because the truth of the matter is that he is none of those things, not even in this confusing passage. The truth of the matter is that he is still compassionate. Now there's a chance that if you've read this passage and been confused by it before, or maybe you've reached um, a false or wrong conclusion about it, like a lot of people have, 
you're thinking I must be crazy if I think that Jesus is acting out of compassion in this passage, as he consistently has in the passages, all the passages, the entire text leading up to this point. And that's okay. We're going to take this nice and slow, uh, and we'll walk through it together. And I'm pretty confident that you'll end up with the same conclusion about this passage that I have. And that is that Jesus is compassionate, even with this passage. Now, uh, we're going to have a whole message today. And remember, this is part two of our message last week. Uh, so I, I think I went 58 minutes last week, which uh, was kind of a long time, even for me. That's, uh, that's kind of a long time. Can you imagine uh, how much more we could have gone if I would have actually put both parts into one lesson? Uh, yeah, you, you guys would have been yeah, headed for the doors before I was done, I'm sure. But do you know why I think um, this passage in particular confuses so many people, plenty of, plenty of scholars included, by the way? Um, it's the fact that they have maybe some poor uh, Bible reading skills. Maybe they know what they're supposed to be doing. They, they know what the proper hermeneutical steps are, uh, proper steps you're supposed to take when you're interpreting a passage are, but they don't apply them here. Uh, honestly, I believe that when we come to a passage that confuses us, if we walk through a series of steps, treading lightly, uh, being careful to cover our bases, most of the time, the difficulty will be gone. The passage will be resolved. And I believe that the reason that the passage we're covering today confuses a lot of people is because they fail to read the passage in its context. Instead, they isolate it, not reading it in the context, but taking it apart from everything else. And listen, if you learn how to do this one step, you'll be better at reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible than most of the people you see on TV. That, it's, it's really that simple. Now, with every lesson, I try to make sure that we understand everything uh, that's led us up to the point at which we find ourselves uh, in the passage that we're studying. That is a vital step, a vital step in, uh, in understanding the Bible. Context. Figuring out the context. Context is everything. Another important step uh, is if you're confused with a passage and it's not making a whole lot of sense... Or maybe even if you think you've got it down, read a parallel passage. And that's obviously really easy when you're reading the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke because there's a huge amount of overlap between those three books. There are de- uh, differences in the details, but there's a huge amount of overlap in the events being described. So the first step is understanding context. So really quick, let's, let's examine the context of our passage If we were to retrace our steps, uh, not all the way back, but just back a a chapter, maybe a chapter and a half, we saw Jesus empower the 12 disciples to go out and essentially expand or multiply the ministry of Jesus among nearby villages. Uh, He gave them the power to do the same things that he had been doing in his ministry, to to heal the sick, to raise the dead, uh, to cure the sick, right? To to cast out unclean spirits, all these things, And, and... to proclaim a message of repentance. And as the disciples came back, what we saw is that they were kind of overwhelmed with pride. They were feeling awfully good about themselves, and they were seeing Jesus not as their Lord, not as their master, not as somebody who was even superior to them, but more like their equal. And that was when Jesus brought them to this isolated section off the Sea of Galilee, where they were followed by thousands and thousands of people. 
And that's where Jesus fed uh, the 5,000 men, in addition to their families, uh, from five loaves of bread and two fish. So Jesus then sent the disciples out onto the Sea of Galilee where they would uh, find the wind working against them, right? They'd be straining at the oars while the wind was working against them. Meanwhile, Jesus stayed on the land to pray, but came out to them walking on the water in the middle of the night. And they headed up, uh, they ended up heading down several miles. Um, they thought they were going home, but they ended up going several miles south to the land of Gennesaret, uh, which is in the region of Decapolis. Uh, and it was here in the land of Gennesaret that the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem came to Jesus and confronted Jesus and his disciples with the fact that they, Jesus and his disciples, hadn't been upholding the tradition of the elders. And we saw that they had placed tradition, the tradition of the elders, on par with Scripture so that tradition had the same importance, the same authority as Scripture. Not only that, but they had found and exploited what they believed to be kind of a loophole uh, in the Scriptures, right? And they were using these things to their advantage to control people. And so Jesus called them hypocrites and thereby pointed out that they were nothing but a bunch of actors on the stage of life. They were basically wearing this mask that says, look at me, look at how righteous I am based on all the things that I'm doing. And they'd hidden behind that mask, playing the role, being a pretender, being an actor, while meanwhile behind the mask they were dying in their sins. And the conclusion that Jesus led us to is that having a checklist, if you'll remember, having a checklist isn't what makes us righteous. Checking things off of a list, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, that's not what makes us righteous because anyone can follow a checklist. An atheist can follow a checklist. Anybody can. And so with that said, the conclusion was that external things don't render a person unclean or unrighteous. The things that come out of a person, that's what makes a person unclean and unrighteous. Murder, slander, adultery, theft, and he goes on and on in pride. Pride. Don't you love that Jesus puts all these things that we all recognize as really horrific sins? Adultery, murder, theft, pride. Don't you love that he tacks pride on at the end there? Uh, Jesus is saying basically that following a checklist and building up pride as a result of your ability to fulfill all the things on this checklist, they leave a person as filthy in God's eyes as a prostitute who's strung out on crack and booze. Man, if that doesn't scare the pride out of you, maybe nothing will. With that much said, we have to understand that true righteousness comes from within, and it's invisible. It's not a checklist. It's not a specific set of behaviors that a person does. It's not even something that we can see. I can't look at somebody and say, I know 100% that this guy or this girl is worshiping right now. You can't do it. There's no way to do it because it's invisible. Real righteousness comes from the heart that's worshiping God. And it's something that only he can truly see. So there we have our context, right, for the passage that we're going to be covering today. Rites, rituals, and traditions, they're not bad necessarily, uh, but they're between the individual and God. It's when those things that are con- personal convictions and personal opinions, it's when those things are imposed on others that it becomes bad. Uh, 
Okay, so the second thing that we want to do is look at parallel passages, and that's why I had you turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15. Go ahead and look on down to verse 21, or turn to verse 21 if that's what you have to do in your Bible. Um, So we're going to do that. We're going to look at this parallel passage before we actually look at our text in Mark. So we're going to be covering Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. This is a parallel passage. Here we read the same story coming out of the same context, but some of the details are different. And it's some of those details that are going to help us make sense of the passage that we're going to be covering in Mark today. So here we read, this is my translation. Your translation might be slightly different, but they, basically, they have the same important details that are different between the different translations. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. It says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she, but she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Now what I'm going to ask you to do is keep your Bibles open to that passage and we'll have the, the passages from Mark, the, the verses from Mark, up here on the overhead. So you'll be able to, to compare back and forth. So we're actually kind of covering two passages today, in a way, I guess, or two, two different uh, books today, but it's the same, uh, same event. Uh, as we read through Mark's narrative, maybe you'll notice some very significant differences, although these differences aren't differences that render one passage inconsistent with the other. Rather, what we'll see is that they complement one another perfectly. They, they do fit together. So we start in Mark chapter 7, uh, verse 24, where we read, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. Now, some people do get hung up on some of the minor differences here. Matthew says that it was the district of Tyre and Sidon, Whereas Mark simply says it's the region of Tyre. Don't even spend time getting hung up on that because they're both correct. What we're going to see in verse 31 of Mark is that Sidon is the next stop. Uh, Tyre was a Gentile region uh, that was located about 30 miles northwest of Capernaum. Uh, And so the first question that we might be asking is, why in the world is Jesus going into Gentile territory. Now, it might look like Mark is trying to change the subject here. You know, Jesus had this confrontation with the Pharisees. He rebuked his disciples because they weren't quite getting the lesson that he was trying to teach. And all of a sudden, Jesus gets up and he's going into the region of Tyre. And we might say, well, okay, so Mark's just changing the subject. No, he's not. He's not changing the subject here. Not at all. Uh, This is where we have to remember the context. The context is Jesus teaching about how True 
righteousness, not, not external righteousness, not something that appears to be righteousness, but true righteousness doesn't come from this external checklist, but that it comes from within the person whose heart worships the Lord. And we're going to come back to this in just a minute, but just for now, remember that he is going into Gentile territory. This is significant. Now, there's a little history between the region of Tyre and the nation of Israel. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5, verse 11, for example, we find that Tyre, in David's time, in, in his age, uh, Tyre was on friendly terms with Israel. But it wasn't long after that when the city became notoriously wicked. In fact, their, uh, their king uh, claimed to be a god. That was in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 1. And around the same time, Tyre rejoiced at the destruction of Jerusalem because it meant less competition for trade, which obviously meant more profits, more people coming in and more profits for the region of Tyre. What was once a relationship that existed on friendly terms, therefore, obviously had become a little bit tense, a little bit hostile over time. And Jesus is about to walk right into the midst of this political and economic tension. That's where he's going. So Mark tells us that Jesus gets up. You notice that Mark included that? That's actually significant. Uh, In our day and age, we would kind of overlook that and not even think twice about it, but that was something that would have been extremely significant in Greco-Roman culture, in first century Greco-Roman culture. See, I think we have it all backwards today. Uh, You know, when you go into a classroom, what do you see? The teacher's standing, and the students are sitting, right? But in first century Greco-Roman culture, uh, and and prior to that, like when Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, when they taught, the teacher would be sitting down, and everyone else was standing up. Now, I can see that there would be a lot of benefits to teaching uh, that way, but there are even more benefits to learning that way, specifically... Anybody who's been through the public school system and you've sat there long enough, you know that it is really easy to just doze off. You're sitting there and all of a sudden you're getting awfully comfortable and you, you, you blink for a second and all of a sudden it's like five minutes later, whoops, you, you fell asleep. Uh, that's not going to happen if you're standing up. So, uh, so Mark points out um, that Jesus got up. And by doing that, he's showing his audience that Jesus was a respected teacher. And so the application here is that we should stand up for Jesus, right? Is that the application? No, of course not. Absolutely not. I'm just testing you on last week's material. Remember, we we made uh, the distinction between something that's prescribed and something that's described. Something that's prescribed says you should be doing this. Something that's described is this is just what happened. And so obviously, uh, you know, if a person feels like the Holy Spirit is, uh, is leading them or convicting them to literally stand up for Jesus, uh, that's great, but don't put it on a checklist for everyone else, right? Okay, so at best, this would be an implied description of what's going on here. So Jesus gets up, and he leaves the land of Gennesaret, and he goes into this Gentile region of Tyre, where he enters a house, presumably uh, it doesn't say, but we can presume that it's probably the house of a Jewish person who lives in the area. Uh, he doesn't want word to get out that he's there, however. And Mark, nevertheless, tells us that Jesus simply couldn't help but be noticed. Let's continue. Verse 25. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. 
Ah, a, a little daughter. Does that sound familiar? Does that ring a bell at all? It should. It should. You'll remember that Jairus, who was an official at the synagogue, came to Jesus with a very similar request. My little daughter. Jairus' daughter had a physical sickness, and she was on the verge of physical death. This woman's daughter is spiritually sick and in spiritual death. And just like Jairus came and fell immediately at Jesus' feet, this woman has done the exact same thing. She comes and she immediately falls at the feet of Jesus. What's she doing wrong? She's not standing up for Jesus. I'm just kidding. She's not doing anything wrong. Okay, verse 26. So now, now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. This is the first encounter, actually, in the book of Mark where he has told us about Jesus having an interaction with a Gentile. Remember, though, this is important, remember that Mark is actually writing to Gentiles His audience was based in Rome, which was a predominantly Jewish region, or Gentile region. There were very few Jews there, but there were some. But his main audience was Gentiles. That's something that we want to probably keep in mind here. But uh, another thing that people get caught up on is found here as well. Uh, Matthew says that she was a Canaanite, and Mark tells us that she's of the Syrophoenician race. Well, which is it? Can it be both? It's both. Mark's, des- uh, Mark's description of her, of her or his designation uh, for her as a Syrophoenician woman indicated her political background, and Matthew's description of her as being a Canaanite woman was intended for his Jewish audience. The book of Matthew is specifically written to Jews. And so this would be like two people, Jim and Nancy, describing the same person, but Jim describes that person as a Republican, and Nancy describes that person as an American. Can they both be right? Yeah, of course. And so that, that's, that's what we're seeing here. There's, there's no contradiction between Matthew's account and Mark's account. Uh, she is a Syrophoenician Canaanite woman. Now, we should see here uh, the, the sense of desperation in this woman's heart. She keeps asking Jesus to heal her daughter. Her daughter has an unclean spirit, a demon, and she's probably tried a few things. She's probably tried something to get her uh, her daughter well again, and nothing's worked. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to note the fact that we don't even know what the daughter has done to make it evident that she's got an unclean spirit in her. Uh, But it's apparent enough to her, and it, it sparks our curiosity, doesn't it? I mean, we might be wondering, well, how does she know that her daughter has a, a demon or an unclean spirit? How, how would she know that? Well, it's something that, that neither Mark nor Matthew uh, find to be important enough to expound on uh, the evidence for. But the woman knows her daughter has an unclean spirit. And they just leave it at that. But what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that Matthew reco- records the exact words that the woman used and, and approached Jesus with. So look at, look at your Bible in, in front of you. She says, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now you might be wondering, why would I draw your attention to that? I'm, I'm glad you're wondering that. Um, we're going to find out here as we look at how Jesus responds. Verse 27 in Mark. 
And he, Jesus, was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now let's just be honest, okay? It seems like Jesus is being really mean here. It seems like he's being cruel, doesn't it? You know, I remember a few years back, probably three or four years ago, I was reading the blog of an atheist, and he pointed right to this passage to basically make the point that Jesus is not a compassionate, kind-hearted person, but that sometimes he was unbelievably rude and unbelievably cruel. What we need to understand, however, is that this Gentile woman addressed Jesus as the son of David, which is a term that the Jews used to refer to their Messiah. So she knows, <clears throat> she knows exactly who he is. And she addresses him as Lord, son of David. That's from Matthew's narrative. See, God's plan, uh, his plans throughout history uh, were never that Gentiles would be excluded from God's blessings. He made provisions for it in the Old Testament. It was part of the covenant that he made with Abraham. But what this woman is doing here is invoking the power of Jewish culture and tradition by referring to Jesus as son of David. She's invoking the power of Jewish culture and tradition. And Jesus is basically saying, you know what? I'm bigger than that. I'm greater than that. Leave your traditions. Leave the traditions of other people behind you and come to me as you are a Gentile. You see, Jesus came to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So if this woman is going to address him according to Jewish tradition and Jewish custom, then she's going to have to wait in accordance with Jewish tradition and Jewish custom. She's going to have to wait for Jesus to get to her if those are the grounds on which she's going to approach Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes had taught you know, that a person had to wash their hands before they came to God in prayer or before they ate so that they would be made ceremonially clean in accordance with tradition. And this woman is thinking that she can't come to God unless she addresses him in the manner that Jewish tradition dictates. And so Jesus' answer here is really in the form of, of a parable of sorts. You follow me here? Is this making sense? This woman's sharp. She, she, she's a, a smart cookie. She's, she's pretty clever. So look at how she changes her approach here in Mark chapter 7, verses 28 to 30. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. He says to her, because of this answer. He doesn't say, because of your wit, because you made me, because you, you followed along with what I was saying and you're, you're so smart, I'm going to answer your, your prayer here. That's not what he says. He says, because of this answer, go. So one of the keys to understanding this passage is seeing that Jesus specifically points out that the reason he's happy to honor her request is because of the different approach that she uses the second time. She doesn't invoke the power of Jewish tradition. She doesn't refer to him 
as the son of David the second time. Matthew points out that Jesus prefaced this response by saying to her, O woman, your faith is great. Not your wit, not your humor, not, hey, you know, that that was a good one. I'll, I'll, I'll do what you want now. It was her faith. So Jesus tells the woman, go home. Your daughter is healed. It was nothing for Jesus to heal this young girl. He didn't even need to say anything. He just says, go home, she's healed. Nothing said about the girl. He didn't need to do anything. Didn't need to hold her hand. He held Jairus' daughter's hand, took her by the hand. But this girl, he doesn't take her by the hand. He doesn't do anything. He didn't even need to be in the girl's presence to heal her. So it's not like Jesus was bothered by this woman, which is the conclusion that a lot of people come to. Jesus is bothered. He he wanted to teach his disciples, and here's this woman. She's interrupting. No, Jesus is there specifically to show his disciples what he had just taught in what we as, as teachers call an object lesson. He's not bothered by this woman. The only reason that he responded so sharply to her the first time was because of the fact that she was attempting to invoke the power of tradition from a culture that she didn't even belong to. He wasn't offended by her. He just wanted to make sure that this woman understood that she can't live by faith and by the weight of tradition on her shoulders at the same time. She can't have it both ways. What happened here is that the woman came to Jesus with a checklist, and Jesus basically said, get that checklist out of here. Don't come to me with a checklist. See, Jesus always wants our faith to be in him. And when we live by a checklist, we put our faith in our own ability to check things off. And so the weight goes to the person. The faith is in the individual rather than in Jesus. You get that? The reason that Jesus had come up north into the region of Tyre is to illustrate for his disciples the same principle that he taught in the passage leading up to this one. A checklist doesn't make us righteous. A checklist doesn't make us pleasing to God. And a person isn't unrighteous based, uh, or on the basis of not performing some traditional ceremonial action or some magic words, but that a person is unrighteous because of what comes out of them. And look at what comes out of this woman. Faith comes out of this woman. See, by this encounter and by, by, sharing, uh, by sharing this narrative, Mark wants to drive home the point that traditions, rites, and rituals can create barriers between us and God when they're not kept in check. Faith alone pleases God, faith alone honors God, and faith breaks right through the barriers that traditions can create. God wants us to come to him through nothing more than simple faith. Just faith, that's it. No magic words, no formulas, no rituals, no ceremonies, none of that stuff. Just opening up our spirit to him and allowing ourselves to be honest, authentic, vulnerable with him. You know, if you wanted to make a church that consisted of nothing but backsliders, you know what a backslider is? Everybody know what a backslider is? It's somebody who, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're keeping up with their faith, and all of a sudden they've just kind of lost interest, and they, 
They, they backslide. They slide back into their old ways. If you wanted to make a church that consisted of nothing but backsliders, you know what the easiest way to do that is? Checklist. Create a mentality that everybody has to live up to this checklist. Yeah, I'm telling you, the road of checklist faith doesn't lead to great faith. It leads to a lack of faith. It leads to backsliding. And there are three reasons why this is. We're going to close with this. Three reasons why checklist faith leads to backsliding. Number one, checklist spirituality creates a backslider because it neglects the heart. Checklist spirituality creates a backslider because it neglects the heart. You work and you work and you work and you're doing all these things that make it look like you've got this righteousness thing all figured out and you end up looking beautiful on the outside, but nobody has realized, not even yourself, nobody's realized or noticed that all the while you were polishing up the outside, the inside was starving. It wasn't being fed. It was just being neglected. And Jesus called this type of person a whitewashed tomb. Pretty on the outside, dead on the inside. And what do you think happens when you starve your heart of true, true fellowship with God? It grows hungry and it grows cold. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this or not, but a funny thing happens when you deprive yourself of food over a prolonged period of time. At first, your stomach is, is really hurting badly. I mean, it, it's like controlling everything you do because you are feeling your stomach. It almost hurts. But over time, you kind of grow used to it. And the feelings kind of subside. And the pain goes away. Your stomach isn't aching for food, but what happens is your body just starts running out of energy. This last week, Christina and I were watching this show called Man, Woman, Wild. Uh, it's one of those survival shows where they, they drop them off in the wilderness and they have to survive uh, for you know, a specified amount of time or they have to find civilization or you know, something like that. And uh, in this episode, these two were, were up in the Alaskan wilderness uh, in the early spring and there was no food anywhere. I mean, there were no birds. There were no animals. There was just nothing there. And so what happened is they ended up going three full days uh, without food. And at first, uh, you know, for the first day, maybe day and a half, they're saying, oh, we're so hungry, we're so hungry, we've got to find something to eat. But after those three days, all they were saying is, we just don't have the energy to go on anymore. We're so tired. And so what they did, th this was the first uh, survival show, or maybe the second survival show I've, I've ever seen where this happened. They actually called in a helicopter to pull them out of there because they ran out of energy. Because they were so hungry. They hadn't been eating. The same, things, the same thing happens when you starve your heart of fellowship with God. Maybe at first you realize, oh man, I've I, I got I to gotta get back to reading my Bible i got to get back to church. I've got to get back into the routine of doing this stuff. But eventually you don't even realize that you're missing out if you neglect it long enough. You just run out of energy and motivation to keep up with the checklist, which leads to the second reason that checklist spirituality creates backsliders. Number two, checklist spirituality creates backsliders because keeping up with the checklist becomes incredibly burdensome, spiritually and emotionally burdensome. In our next chapter, 
in Mark. We're going to see Jesus tell his followers, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but when, when I read that and when I think about carrying, literally carrying a cross around, I'm like, man, that's, that's really heavy. That, that's got to be like at least 100 pounds. It's solid wood. It's going to be heavy to carry a cross around with me. But if there's one thing that's heavier on your spirit than a cross, it's a checklist. It's a checklist. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Now, it's interesting to note that while, I don't know, any of you guys ever watch ESPN when they have the like, bodybuilding competitions on? You know, they, they show these bodybuilders who are you know, all greased up and lathered up in baby oil or whatever they use, and they're all shiny, and they've got the lights just right, and you can see muscles that you didn't even know existed on these guys. You know, it, obviously, they're incredibly strong, but they're actually not the strongest people in the world. On ESPN, they also show these things called strongman competitions. And if you've ever watched a strongman competition and then watched a bodybuilding competition, you realize that there's actually a big difference between the two. Bodybuilders are not the strongest people in the world. But it's pretty amazing to watch a strongman competition because these guys do things like, uh, you know, pull airplanes, you know, with floss. You know, stuff like that, you know, hooked up to a harness on them. And they're, they're... Walking, you know, they're going 100 yards carrying, uh, you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 pound rocks like it's nothing. But with fresh muscles, that's, that's easy, carrying a 100 pound rock. But after they've done it for long enough, eventually, even the strongest end up dropping those big old stones because their muscles are worn out. And so they get to the point where they can no longer really lift anything. What happens to them physically is the same thing that happens to us spiritually when our faith is based on a checklist. Eventually, we just drop it. We can't go on. And so we become a backslider. So that's the second reason. Number three, checklist spirituality creates backsliders because it gives us a sense of entitlement. It looks something like this. You do all these, you've got your checklist, right? You've got your checklist and you've got them all checked off. You've done all of them. All of them. And you're doing them over and over and over. And these are all good things in and of themselves. It's things like going to church, praying, uh, you know, doing a Bible study, you know, things like that. These are all, uh, a, they're all good things in and of themselves. And you do these things and you do these things and you do these things and you keep checking them off the list, checking them off the list. You're doing these things regularly. You've even, you know, you've put the fish sticker on your car. Check. You said your morning prayers. Check. Uh, You know, you've done your Bible reading. Check, 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 check. Right down the list. You've done all these things that make a good Christian, that make you look like a good Christian, and you're feeling awfully proud of yourself. And then what happens is Jesus sends you out into the storms of life where you are working against the wind and straining at the oars. You're fighting with, some, with a situation that God has put you into. Maybe it means your life savings were depleted in the latest real estate market crash or the stock market crash. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe your spouse leaves you. Maybe uh, you know, your parents get divorced. And what do you do? 
You pull out the list. And you say, God, I've been doing all these things, and you're going to let me go through this? After all these checklist things that I've fulfilled, you're just going to sit there and let this happen? Because we feel entitled. Because of our checklist. Trust me, I, I've seen it in people. And I will, I, I, I hate to admit this, but I, I lived it. When I went into the casino industry, man, that, that was me. I was going through some tough times and I was saying, God, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary for a year. And you're letting, you're letting this happen to me? You feel entitled because of a checklist. And then you face this fork in the road where one way leads to being humbled and the other one leads to backsliding. And the one that leads to being humbled is rocky, it's narrow, it's steep, doesn't look like a lot of fun. And the way that leads to backsliding suddenly looks awfully nice. It's paved. It's downhill. And oh, look at, look at all those nice things along the way. And, and new, nice cars, nice job, big paychecks. And so what it all comes down to is this. We'll end with this. Are you putting your faith in a spiritual checklist today? Or are you putting your faith in Jesus? Is your faith in a checklist or is it in Jesus? Make no mistake about it. You cannot have it both ways. It will not work both ways. See, a church can be driven by guilt or a church can be driven by grace. Again, you cannot have it both ways. One of the things that I love about this church is I think we are a very grace-led, grace-filled church. And as long as I'm around, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that we continue being driven by grace and not by guilt. Because God's grace drives out guilt. Because the two things can't coexist. Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is so freeing. That's grace. And I would encourage you today and, and, and every day to come to God just as you are. Authentic. Vulnerable. Honest. Be vulnerable. Admit your need for His grace and know that He's already made provision for it through His Son Jesus. It's not based on your checklist. It's not based on your spiritual accomplishments. It's based on none of the things that any of us have done. No, His acceptance of us and His provision of grace for us is based on Himself and what He did on our behalf. And when you understand that, when you really grasp that and come to him based on that alone, that's when you're giving God what he truly wants, faith. Let's pray. God, we just want to be honest with you. We know that we can't fool you. We know that while people judge the outside you look at the inside. And so we confess to you, Lord, that there have been times when we've all performed, when we've all played the role. But we thank you that you have made provision to forgive us through your Son, Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to be authentic with each other and with you, vulnerable with each other and with you,
and honest, willing to change, willing to follow your spirit wherever you lead. I thank you for this passage. I pray that you will convict each of us individually, Lord, but that you will give us grace with others, that we won't uh, be looking at a checklist for others, but that we'll just see them through your eyes. We love you. We thank you that your son, that Jesus acted out of compassion in this situation, just like he acts out of compassion in our lives today when we come to him in faith. And so, Lord, increase our faith. Teach us to trust in you, regardless of what our circumstances might be, whether they're good or bad. Just to trust in you, knowing that you are This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.